Hey, and welcome to this week's podcast. Interesting show today, talking to Robert Crenshaw, brother of Marshall Crenshaw, and drummer, songwriter, and now author. I met this guy one time, although I saw his band when he was in Marshall Crenshaw's band. I saw that band many times over the years. Always great shows. Uh, but eh, when be the the mid '90s, the late '90s. I had just I did a tour opening for Marshall Crenshaw in Japan of all places. I got invited to open for him, and we were uh, both had to play acoustic, and we were both pretty much the only people that really spoke English. So we talked to each other quite a bit, uh, and then right after that, he moved to Brooklyn and lived just a few houses down from the bar that I worked in. So I'd see Marshall; he'd come in the bar once in a while, and then one day he brought his brother. Uh, Robert, who was visiting, and that's how I met Robert Crenshaw. He, he's our guest today. Is that a good story? I have no idea. Uh, but this is a fantastic audiobook. Go out, have a listen to it. Interesting story, touches a lot of interesting things. Enjoy this. Okay, there is on the drums there Robert Crenshaw. He is a singer, a songwriter. Uh, of course, he played the drums for his brother for years and years. We're going to talk about all of that. But, of course, he the reason he's here is because he's an author, a brand-new book called My Mythological Narrative, Iraq Odyssey. And it's also, well, I guess it's mainly an audio book. We're going to talk all about it. Uh, Robert, welcome to the program. Good morning. Well, thanks, Michael. It's really an honor to be on. I've had your brother on the show a couple times. I've got, I know you've got three brothers, so maybe I'll have everybody on one day. We have a family reunion out here in New Jersey. You guys grew up uh, outside of Detroit in the, in the suburbs. It seems like from looking at all the pictures in the book, and there's a ton of uh, photographs uh, throughout the book, that you guys had like the total typical late 50s, early 1960s childhood. Is that right? Well, I mean, I would say that we had, a, you know, like a really a fortunate version of it, you know. Um, both of our parents are, you know, college-educated and all that sort of stuff, so we had a really nice, you know, version of a middle-class, you know, um, suburban life growing up. seems like your parents were supporters of the idea of you guys all playing music and y'all took piano lessons and stuff like that. When did you first gravitate towards drums? Well, you know, I mean, I was so young that I almost don't remember, you know, my, my earliest memories of it were, you know, like, uh, I used to share, a, you know, there was, we lived in this little house for a while, where there's two bedrooms, and Marshall had a practice pad, because he was in elementary school band, and so I used to, you know, mess around with that. But I mean, I got a snare drum when I was four years old, you know, and and and, and he and I would actually, you know, um, be called on to perform at family reunions and stuff. So I mean, it, it was I was really young, you know, when I started, just, you know, fiddling around with drums. Yeah, uh, one of the and there's a lot of great parts in the book, and I'm going to skip around a, a lot. So one of the parts of the book that I love best is when you sort of start playing with this band, I think it's called Denny and the Robots, and it's sort of an oldies band, and one of the things you guys do is back some sort of more famous headliners, but you also play in some really rough, rough, rough places, real working class places, and surprise, these were all union gigs. You had to join the musicians' union, so uh, tell me about that weird, rough club scene. I mean, I assume nothing like that exists anymore. 
Well, I was in high school, and I, you know, a friend of mine said, "I want to introduce you to this guy, and he has a band, and he's looking for a drummer." You know, and I was, you know, like I was a senior in high school, so we, I went and I met the guy, and I auditioned, you know, for him, and he was, and his name was Dennis Quinn, and when I went to his house, you know, we sat down in his basement and listened to a big stack of 45s, you know, and talked about the records that we love and everything, and then I realized, you know, this is a pretty good fit you know with Dennis so we auditioned you know for some guys actually uh, one of the guys that we auditioned was the, was the writer of that song she's got the devil in her heart but it was really cuz uh, i can't think of his name it escapes me right now but it was you know at the, it was originally written as he's got the devil in you know in, in his heart um but Anyway, so I didn't really have any preconceived ideas of what it was going to be like to go and play these clubs, but, you know, it, they were just rough middle, you know, uh, or should I say blue-collar clubs with uh, a lot of bikers in it, you know, bike gangs who hung out there, and then also some car clubs, which I had, you know, I had never heard of. But, I mean, there were fights almost every night, you know, <laughs> at, the, at these clubs. But as you mentioned, you know, we backed up some other people. There was a guy named um, Gina Washington that we got to back up, and he had, you know, had records in Detroit. And then also we got to back up the uh, Contours, you know, and it was like that was a huge thrill, you know, to meet those guys. And they were and they were great. You know, we backed them up, you know, for a few nights, um, and, you know, they had a lot of funny stories, and they were super nice to us. So it was great. Yeah, and the, 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 these are union gigs, so how much did they pay and how long? How, how many hours or how many sets were there a night? Well, I think that we played from nine to two, and that so that was about five sets. You know, sometimes they broke it up so that it was six sets. But um, so that was that. But you know, when we first started out, I think it was a little bit under two hundred dollars. You know, a week, which was you know, which was pretty decent money for nineteen seventy five. One of the greatest parts about this book is that you're very honest you're you know you're honest about the close calls of getting beaten up and uh the, the sex and drugs and and all about it. when you're a high school kid and you're spending you know eight hours a night in a bar i assume you get you know uh exposed to the the darker side i don't know the the you know drugs and alcohol and things like that real early how did you handle that well, you know, until I then, you know, in 1975, the drinking age was 18, but I was 17, and you know what? I just didn't drink, hmm. you know, until I until I turned, you know, 18. But you know, I mean, the idea of being around like adult women and you know, and all these things. I mean, it, it was uh, it was. Um, you know, very informative to my um, like adolescence, and uh, it was, you know, I, in one way, I just want to say that I didn't have any expectations, so everything, you know, just kind of came, and I just, you know, I thought that I just acted as cool as, about it as I could. But I mean, certainly, like, you know, people fighting and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I had never been around that kind of stuff, and you know, um, there was a sign on one of the clubs that said um, "No Colors," you know, and I thought, well, what the heck? does that mean? <laughs> and, uh, so, and I was thinking, well, they can't do that, right? But, uh, you know, of course, it meant no uh, 
you know, uh, car, you know, no bike club colors, you know, like you couldn't have a jacket that said Hell's Angels on it, you know, I suppose, you know, or back then in Detroit, it was the Renegades, you know, but uh, of course people did wear, you know, wear those jackets and, uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, now that I think about it, I mean, you can't really make some of the stuff up. I mean, I guess it's in the book and I didn't need to make it up, but it's pretty interesting, you know, uh, crazy stories for sure. Yeah, and one of the other things you do in the book that I think keeps it real interesting is you sort of put the events that you, that's happening to you in perspective to what else is going on in the world, which which I think is a real smart uh, way of doing it. We always hear that you know bands like the Beatles owe it all to those many many nights where they would play just like you did for many sets over in Hamburg, Germany. Did, is that did was that true for you that that sort of playing for you know so long such a prolonged time just made you stone cold good well i mean i, I think that um it definitely you know you hone your craft by um repetition and then also i mean you know being in a band with in an oldies band with marshall and and this other guy dennis quinn i mean they would just call stuff out and you know i may have heard the song once but i had certainly never played the songs you know a lot of times so it it was really just so much kind of you know creative fun with your you know especially with me i mean cuz marshall's my older brother you know i'm older i'm you know 17 years old in this bar hanging out with you know with the big kids right <laughs> and you know so it was just like creative and you know joyous thing you know you know maybe about 50% of the time i mean and that's pretty good to have something that's 50% joyous and fun right that's way above average yeah uh, let me remind folks that robert crenshaw is our guest and his new book and audiobook is my mythological narrative iraq odyssey which is i think sort of a tongue in cheek uh, title sort of but maybe sort of not one of the another one of my absolute favorite parts of the book is you you've been playing in this band and other bands and this you know they as as happens, bands kind of morph a little bit, uh, and then all of a sudden, you guys start hearing some new music. You know, I guess it's sort of the precursor to new wave and things like that. What would get called new wave, and it's like a little bit of a wake up call for you guys. So, tell me about when you the first things you heard that made you think, hey, you know, and it kind of it sort of stopped your type of music in its tracks, sort of. Well, you know, well, someone, you know, made the uh, comparison, is, you know, or someone made an analogy one time for me about that, you know, when the rock and roll guys came along, they just killed the big band guys, you know, and, uh, you know, when, when, um, as far as like live music come, you know, went in the it, during that time, it's like there was a ton of live music everywhere, and then suddenly, you know, disco just kind of killed the live music scene, um, you know, in Detroit, except for this new, you know, this new kind of genre that they were calling, you know, either punk rock, you know, or new wave. And I didn't really know anything about it, you know, at first. And it really, I was kind of late to the game to explore it. I mean, once I realized that it was very similar to the thing that we were already doing, you know, then it was like, okay, you know, this, this is great. I love, I love these guys. But, you know, but when, when our scene kind of be, began to die, you know, like the oldies band thing, I mean, you know, it was like, a uh, post you know world war 2 like a, a way to escape and return to those times you know and uh 
But anyway, when this when the when this other music came out, you know, me and uh, my buddy Don Jones, you know, we went down to go see some of these bands, and it was like, well, I mean, you know, we used to in the oldies band, we used to play a lot of songs that were off of that Nuggets record, so that was kind of the model for you know a, a lot of that mu- the music that people were playing, you know, I, I believe, um, you know, that garage band stuff. The book follows you from Detroit to New York, where you kind of come and go really quickly. Your just quick impression of New York in the mid-70s. I was scared to death. I mean, I thought that it was really, really fun and fascinating, and the energy was right, you know, for the for my age and stuff like that. But, I mean, I, it was, you know, very, very different than the suburb that I'd grown up in. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you end up doing all sorts of things, all sorts of odd jobs, including building hot dog cooking machines and a lot, yeah, a lot of construction work, uh, some audio uh, work, uh, help being a magician's assistant. And then uh, your brother, Marshall, gets signed to Warner Brothers 1981, and uh, and then the the real adventure sort of begins there. Uh, you guys make the first record with Richard Goddard. He's been a guest on this show. Uh, tell me about making that first record. I mean, you guys had messed around in recording studios and stuff, but was that just, uh, you know, did that blow your mind? It totally blew my mind. You know, when you walk into a studio and you see, you know, records by John Lennon on the wall and by Jimi Hendrix on the wall and by all these other people on the wall, you just think, oh, my God, you know, this is, <laughs> this is amazing. How did yeah. I end up here? So, I mean, you know, in some ways it just seemed, you know, it, like it was such a good fortune that it just seemed unreal. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, we had played a lot of gigs. We were kind of ready to do it. And, you know, like we were well rehearsed. Um, you know, and we just went in there and worked really hard. But I mean, uh, you know, Richard Goddard and Tom Panunzio and the other people who worked on the record, Kristen Otto, and you know, and I mean, it, it was a really a good team of people, you know. And I will say this about Marshall: if anything, he's always been able to put together really great teams of people, you know, on uh, on tours and uh, and on records. So. It was it was just wonderful. I mean, also like people, you know, like the Go Go's stopped by, you know, one time, and then also, you know, um, that first Go Go's record went to number one, you know, while we were in the studio. So I mean, it was just, you know, kind of beyond belief cool. <laughs> yeah, because Richard had produced that record too, so you guys thought, okay, we're on the same track here. Just, uh, uh, it was. It's still. It's a real touchstone kind of record. It's a real special record just because I think it's what people needed at that time. You know, it was sort of just a really well-placed record, and it's just very timeless. So congratulations on that. The book sort of follows you through your your history with Marshall, touring around the world, uh, making records, and then slowly uh, Marshall starts using other drummers and eventually not you at all. And you talk a little bit about this in the book, it's it's hard. I think I remember talking to Marshall. He's been on the show a couple of times about this very question. I think he said something like it was very hard to make that decision, especially because he could see the, all the work that for years that you'd put into it. But how did it feel from your point of view? Well, you know, my heart was really broken, you know, on a professional level. I mean, I kind of understood. I mean, and then I also, you know, the records that the Wrecking Crew played on, I love those records. So, I mean, you know, people just get displaced in that business. And there's, you know, there's, 
you know, it's 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 a it's business. <laughs> that's, you know, that's but it was. I mean, it was. I was really hurt. You know, I wanted to be really mad at you know Marshall, but there wasn't really any fruit to be mad at Marshall. And then, but there was like an awkwardness in my family about mm. it because um, it had been such a such the focal point of the family for so long. You know, and then kind of, you know, people, like people would get quiet, <laughs> but, you know, and, and the conversation would stop sometimes, you know, because uh, they, they, they were talking about something about it. So, it, you know, it, it was tough. I mean, but I think, you know, anytime that something like that happens, it's sort of like going through a divorce or, you know, something you just really, I mean, I just really need to reinvent myself, mm. you know, and to um, find a new, find new goals, you know, and aspirations and dreams, you know. So it took me a long time to do it. It, but I mean, I did it. Yeah, that's very good for you because not everybody is able to get back up from that. You have put out a bunch of solo records, which folks can find, uh, and you also sort of got a whole new career in the robotics industry. And I know you travel around and teach people about robotics, and uh, it's that's something that you know, obviously, I know nothing about. But obviously, you you must be pretty pretty successful at it because you're always busy uh working and writing and and uh, teaching stuff about that Bef- before we go i i, I want to play uh, instead of a song i want to play a, a little five minute sample of the audiobook and i want to point out to folks that really this whole project is something that you envisioned as an audiobook sort of the the hard uh, copy of the book is something folks can order or the ebook they can they can and Go ahead, buy buy a copy or two, uh, but really an ebook, uh, uh, and I'm sorry, an audio book is is what you envisioned. And I know that you recorded this over a period of years, and I know that there's tons of guest stars on it, and there's sound effects, and there's music, there's tons of music. So just you know, tell me about the process of putting the audio uh, book version of this together. Well, I travel a lot, so I'm in hotel rooms. I travel with a MIDI keyboard, and uh, and I traveled with a nice, you know, microphone and a, you know, pop screen and you know all the things that I needed to be able to do it. And so, you know, when I'm in my hotel, when I was in my room, you know, I just I would either I would write, you know, write the story, or record, you know, voiceover stuff or record, um, you know, music for it. So there's a lot of instrumental music, you know, that's in the that's in the background. But then there's also a lot of kind of rare old but great you know little sound snippets of things that you know that I had recorded with Marshall and then also some sound snippets of you know music that was going on during the time that I you know time period that I'm talking about so it's really jam packed you know full of uh, sound effects you know uh and music but the process you know uh eventually I ended up going and uh, working with Don Dixon who's a record producer and then also he comes from a theater background so he was really helpful, you know, in uh, helping me mix this together because I really wanted it to be, you know, theatrical. On the playlist for today's program, I've got some links of where folks can uh, go have a listen to this uh, this audio book. It's a lot of fun. We're going to hear this um, uh, this little sample a few minutes here of you you talking about making uh the second record field day uh so we're gonna hear that in just a minute but before we do we we switched from richard godwer producing to steve lillywhite who had you know a total different approach to making records back then he was very much more technologically minded you know he he at least that's what i guess you know just from listening to his catalog it's much more about getting these very contemporary sounds and stuff and 
uh, famous, famous for getting these huge drum sounds, these kind of Phil Collins-y sounding uh, drums, which is so different from Richard Goddard. So tell me about, from your perspective, you know, recording the drums there, and how did you feel about just making that record? Well, the power station it has a you know a, has a really beautiful you know hardwood room in it, and uh, you know Marshall had some songs that you know that were ready to go and some that weren't, and then also you know uh, Stephen Lillywhite gave us you know as much rope as we could possibly want as far as input. If somebody got an idea and they wanted to try something, you know we would do it. So. It was really that record. I would say was definitely the kind of the most fun and joyful. The one um, you know with Richard was really great, but it was also you know they had very specific ideas about you know pretty much everything, and this one was much more like you know playtime. And uh, so uh, you know there is a, there is a looseness and a funness you know uh, sense of fun to that record um, that. I really like, but again, once again, you know, we had this. I mean, Scott Litt was a, was the engineer on the record. You know, he's a pretty talented guy, and then also Stephen Lillywhite, and this um, and the assistant was this guy Gary Rinfrey. So I mean, so once again, Marshall put together a great team, you know, to be able to uh, you know make the record, and you know, yeah, it was just you know creative joy and spontaneity, you know, and plus uh, John Crenshaw was there. And uh, you know, did stuff on it. So there was no, so it was not only me and Marshall, but it was also our third brother John as well. So yeah. big fun. Uh, it's really a fun, fun story, and it touches on a whole bunch of things, including you know that early part, and then um, the whole going you know Marshall Crenshaw uh, journey of his his career kind of starting and exploding, and 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 what happened in New York City, and all these things. Uh, we've just really touched the surface on it. Uh, Robert Crenshaw, thanks for visiting with us this morning. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope f- folks buy this book, My Mythological Narrative, A Rock Odyssey. Uh, links are on the playlist for today's program. Let's hear uh, this is a little sample of you talking about making a field day. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> The first time I met Steve Lillywhite was after a show at the Warner Theater in D.C. We were going to record another record, and Steve was going to be the producer. Steve had produced records for U2, Big Country, XTC, Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, Joan Armitraden, Simple Minds, and the Psychedelic Furs. I had no idea. He's also the whistler on the song Games Without Frontiers by Peter Gabriel. And he does make a Hitchcock appearance on Field Day as well. On 53rd Street, between 9th and 10th Avenue, there was an Edison plant. The building was abandoned, then turned into a soundstage for the popular television game show Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall, run by Lou Ron Television. You can still read the faint company name on the glass above the front door of the building. The recording studio was designed and built in 1977 as the power station by Tony Bianjovi, a respected producer and acoustical genius. The power station consists of four main studios, A through D, which were custom designed with acoustics and usability in mind and built with the utmost care. Studio A, the largest recording suite, can fit a 60-piece orchestra. That's where we recorded the rhythm tracks for field days. Scott Litt was the engineer. 
At the time, he had worked with Carly Simon, but more importantly to us, he had worked with the DBs, who we liked. Scott went on as a producer to make six hugely successful records with R.E.M. and mix some singles for Nirvana. We set up with amps and isolation booths, but Chris Marshall and I were together in the big room and set up like a band. Steve was very much into ambient sound, so he had several room mics set up, including a pair up in the 30-plus foot ceiling. Later, we shot the bass guitar back through an amp in the room and got the ambience that way. The strangest thing we did, of which there were many, was he took a snare drum track on a song and shot it through a Fender Twin Reverb amp with the reverb and tremolo on and recorded that in the room. The thing was, Steve was willing to try anything we thought of to do, and both Scott and Steve were great engineers, so they knew how to do everything you could do with the gear that was there. You talk about a fun and creative time, this was it. David Bowie was upstairs in Studio C with Nile Rodgers, finishing up the Let's Dance record. <laughs> I went up there a couple of times to steal beer from their refrigerator, but I never saw him. There was also a really nice guy who worked at the front desk at the power station. His full name was John Francis Bongiovi Jr., but he was just John to us. Steve was very meticulous about every note of every performance. He'd punch in one syllable of one word or one note of a solo to get the performance he wanted. I can remember punching in drums on a section of a song. These days, most musicians would rather take their own lives than record in this fashion, but we had never been put through it before, and we had confidence in Steve's abilities and intuitions, rightly so. On the first record, we had Michael Osborne come in and tune drums. He'd be there all day, changing heads and just listening to the drums. On the debut album, Richard Goddard had me tune the snare drum down really low so the head was real flappy. He also had me hitting the drums so hard that the head would only last a couple of takes and then it'd have to be changed. In retrospect, it seems kind of wasteful, but it did add to the fun and the education of the process nonetheless. Michael was also around for field day. I got into tuning the drums so that the resonant notes would be the key that the song was in. It seemed like a good idea at the time. There were also guitar techs around who kept a battery of guitars in tuned and changed strings and whatnot. It was a real production. (laughs) 